This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. And now, from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Knowledge, advice, and insight into starting, building, and managing a small business. Here is your host, Lauren Feldman. Welcome to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm Chief Content Officer of the Oxford Center for Entrepreneurs, where we publish a daily newsletter of must-reads for business owners. It's called The Morning Report. As usual today, we're not going to tell you how to run your business. This show is about ideas and strategies and conversations, and we want to have those conversations with you. If there's something holding you back, especially if it involves the financial side of running a business, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And remember, this is a safe space for business owners. If you're struggling with something, someone else listening to the show is probably struggling with it too. In other words, there are no stupid questions. With us today to discuss your questions, your challenges, is Lou Mosca, Chief Operating Officer of American Management Services and a regular guest on this show. American Management Services is based in Orlando. It's a consulting firm that helps business owners, whether they're succeeding or struggling, which is why Lou always brings us interesting stories from the front lines. Welcome back to the show, Lou. My pleasure. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. And you? Oh, not too bad. Pretty good, as a matter of fact. Glad to hear it. Tell me. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing out there? What are you hearing from your clients? Um, you know, we work with folks uh, pretty much around the country, and I think it's pretty much a mixed bag at this point, Lauren. You know, if, uh, I have a lot of folks that are doing very well and want to continue that and just want to lock things down. I have a fair amount of folks that are struggling with transitioning to the next generation, which I think is always an ongoing struggle. And then I've got a significant percentage of our clients that are really struggling financially. The results are not where they belong. But, you know, people are still relatively optimistic, but I could see that the results are just not where they should be for a lot of folks. For those folks you're referring to who are struggling, do you see it as being primarily about issues with their specific businesses, or is there something in the economy that's causing that? You know, I, I said this to you once before, and I'll, I'll, I'll say it again. I, I haven't had many folks, believe it or not, complain to me about tariffs. I haven't had uh, I haven't had many owners complain to me about tariffs and the, and the impacts of tariffs on them. I actually haven't had a lot of folks um, uh, be happy about uh, tax reduction. You know, I think most of the folks I come across that have problems, the problems are isolated to what's going on in their building, their four walls, and their management styles. That makes sense. You uh, you send out uh, regular emails uh, w- with videos that I very much enjoy and always watch. You sent out one recently that uh, that struck me. It was about uh, something that I think probably has been happening to a lot of owners lately, especially with the, the tight labor market. It's uh, You ask the question, what do you do when a key employee quits? Um, why don't you tell us? What's your answer to that question? <laughs> well... I just have this fundamental belief that if someone wants to go, they should go. But I also believe when a key employee quits, you need to have some uh, – it should never have that much of an impact on you. So key employees are key employees, of course. But if you do a proper cross-training and if you have proper non-competes and non-disclosure agreements in place, then the impact to your business should not be devastating. And I find that many times uh, cross-training is haphazard, and I find that – Almost always, I, I don't run across, across any clients that have non-competes or non-disclosure agreements in place. And I know they don't stand up fantastic in court, and I'm not suggesting everyone become a litigator or get involved in litigation. But a simple non-compete and a simple non-disclosure that can protect you for three or six months, I think, would hold up. And I think it protects the integrity of the business. So key employee goes and you've managed it properly should not be devastating. You, you say that. You know, if somebody wants to go, they should go. But we, we're, we're talking about key employees here, and th- there must be certain times when it's worth trying to keep someone. Um, where do you draw the line? Wh- what's the right time to do that? I think that in, in uh, I think that in today's climate of finding candidates, the way to make sure that you know what's going on with your key folks is to keep an open dialogue, good communication 
show them what their growth pattern or their growth potential can be, make sure they always understand where opportunities are going to lie for them, and, of course, compensation has to go along with that. But I, I find it very rare that key folks leave because of money. They leave because they're not satisfied or they're, they're just not happy and not silly word in business, but they're not happy, they're not satisfied, they don't think the opportunity is going to be there. And I think that is a, a business 101 problem. It actually goes right in line with companies that are struggling, it's usually because they're not managing properly within their four walls. People that struggle to keep their key employees, it's usually because they don't have the right dialogue, the right training, the right communication process with those key employees. But I am, I will tell you, I'm, I'm pretty sincere about this. I don't care who it is. If they want to leave, they should leave. I, I think most people would agree with that. I mean, if if you're leaving because you don't see the opportunity and you think there's something better somewhere else, yeah, absolutely. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, my question is kind of, you know, I hear you about it. It's rarely just about the money, but, but in a tight labor market, isn't it more common for it to be just about the money? And in, in that circumstance, couldn't you save yourself a lot of trouble by maybe paying a little bit more rather than having to replace a key employee? I think it's different. I think if they've given you notice and they plan to go to throw money at them, they're going to go eventually anyway. I think if you're having an open lines of communication and you've got good dialogue and you're working with your key staff and they understand your mission, your goal, where you want to go, and you're part of their life and they're part of your life, and money has to be part of the equation, that's a different scenario. Money to keep someone after they've given notice, I don't find that that usually works and it creates bad flavor for everybody. So I don't have an issue with giving more money to the right people at the right time if there's the right dialogue and communication. But money to save someone doesn't rarely happen in my world. I'm talking to Lou Mosca, Chief Operating Officer of American Management Services. If you've got a question, give us a call. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Here's another one, Lou. You, uh, you advised people recently not to be afraid to micromanage. That runs counter to a lot of advice you hear out there. Uh, why, why are you encouraging people to micromanage? Well, I'm, uh, before I answer that... I have a question for you. Okay. So when when you come on and you do the show all the time, you always say this is a safe space. Yes. It's never going to be a safe space for me. <laughs> it's always a safe space for you, Lou. <laughs> that sure sounds that way. All right. So here's my here's my belief. Here's my belief. I believe when you're starting out and you're growing a business and you've got that plan or that dream and you want to take it from a plan or a dream to actually you know, sticking your key in the door and doing something, I think you need to have your hands in everything and on everything. Um, I think as your business grows and as you start to develop some degrees of success, I think my definition of micromanaging is probably different than what most people would think. I think there's nothing an owner shouldn't know. That doesn't mean I believe an owner needs to be in the middle of everything. So, in fact, uh, you know I don't own American management, but I treat it like it's my child. And I want my key people to come to me with uh, challenges, but I want them to come to me with solutions. I want to know what's going on. I want to have my daily, weekly reports at my fingertips so I can see what's going on. But I don't want to be in the middle of doing it. So that's, that's sort of how I look at micromanaging, Lauren. You know, I, I don't pretend to, to be a business owner or an entrepreneur, but I have managed people. And I, I think I, I do struggle from time to time with the tension between thinking, you know, I, I need to jump in there and just do this myself and make sure it's right. And thinking, mm-hmm. yeah, but they're never going to learn. They're never going to get better at this unless I let them do it. Um, how, how do you square those things with your, uh, your thinking about micromanagement? Yeah, I, I, I sort of, you know, I sort of have the same challenge, and I don't know anyone that doesn't. Um, but to me, you know, I, I have um, I have no tolerance. So to me, if I see something should be going left instead of going right, I do want to jump and go running down the hall and say, what the heck are you doing and why, and let's go this way and let's go that way. And I fight myself to do it. So, uh, and I guess um, I succeed at fighting myself sometimes, and I fail at fighting myself other times. <laughs> But what I do do is I try to make sure that my staff knows that I'm listening. I actually had uh, them all in here on a Saturday two weeks ago for a couple of hours. And one of the things I talked about are the things I need to get better at to help them to mature. 
and we put that on the table. I discussed that with them. I was I tried to be open about it. I wanted them to be open about it. And and uh, uh, but you know, if you don't let them run a little bit, they're never going to succeed. So you know, I I struggle to do it, but I try to let out a little bit more rope every month. We're going to introduce a very special guest in just a moment, but let's take a, a phone call first. And by the way, if you've got a question about your business, call us. We're at one eight four four Wharton. That's eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Let's go to Lisa in Florida. Welcome to Mind Your Business, Lisa. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Pleasure. Thanks um, for calling. My dilemma is that um, I run a day spa, so this is the type of business where you have to train the employees before they're really effective at um, executing the services to your clients. And with employee retention, what I'm finding is that I spend a lot of time and hours training these employees, and then they leave. Um, They tend to get a sense of um, entitlement, and um, I don't know how to counter that. Do I make them sign a contract to where they can't work for competitors? That really doesn't work in my favor. It will cost me a lot of legal recourse, so I don't want to take that route. What can I do? I've overpaid employees before to my own demise, Uh, so now I want to maintain market competitive rate as far as compensation but I want them to be motivated and understand the value of what I'm doing. But it's like I'm losing these experienced employees based on my training. Lisa, before I uh, let Lou answer your question, tell me, um, are you uh, are you losing these employees to competitors? Yes, two competitors. And uh, one actually tried to, well, she started her own like boutique business, providing uh, day spot services as her own as a self-employee. And the ones that went to competitors, did, did they uh, get more money? Uh, they did not get more money. They were able to um, – uh, let's see. Why did they go to other – they went to other uh, competitors. I don't really know the reason why because they have a lot of um, autonomy with me. They set their own hours. They come and go as they please. Um, but I do have a high level of quality for the execution of my services. Because, so I don't have a lot of um, client – my clients don't leave. They simply don't. They go to, com- to competitors that have a lower quality of expectations. That has been what I've seen. So, so Lou, it sounds like Lisa is kind of doing what you're talking about. She, she's managing her employees uh, carefully, and she's also not begging them to stay when they want to go. Any thoughts on what she can do to uh, improve her situation? So, Mr. Feldman, as you know, in a different lifetime, I own some hair salons. <laughs> so a day spa is very unique. Um, it's got unique services. It's got unique specialties. And I think one of the things that, Lisa, you might want to consider, because back in the day, and I'm talking about a long time ago, over 20-plus years ago, I owned a bunch of beauty salons. And the way I thought I needed to keep them was to provide them with something other people were not doing. So I provided them with three things. Number one, and this was well over 20 years ago, I provided them with health insurance. Um, It was at the time very uh, inexpensive. It was able to do it, but it differentiated me from everybody else on the block. Number two, I put together a tiny profit sharing plan for them. So based on the profits of what we generated, they all got a little taste. And number three, I made sure to stay in touch with my key people all the time. I visited them. I had one-on-ones every week. And I still believed, even back then, they want to leave, they should go. Um, But I made it very hard for them to leave, and my turnover was close to nil. I see. Okay. Okay, so aside from just quality training, so they have the skill set to provide to the customers, I need to invest in them myself and build a rapport. Well, if you don't, you know, anyone that doesn't invest in their employees is going to lose them eventually anyway. So to me, you know, I'm a pretty black and white kind of guy. So running six hair salons was totally out of my norm of comfortableness. But I I think I shocked the heck out of all of them when we brought in. And I remember at the time it was United Healthcare to provide health insurance to all of them. And some opted for it, some didn't. But the fact that we put it on the table with some type of matching contribution, I think that floored them. I had no turnover. I had about 65, 70 employees between the six salons. 
Obviously, Lou, as as you pointed out, healthcare is a lot more expensive and difficult today. Let's talk about the profit sharing thing a little bit. So Mm -hmm. if if Lisa's intrigued by that idea, there are all different ways to set something like that up. How would you advise her to get started? What's the first step to figure out how to do something like that? Number one, you got to make sure that uh, you're profitable to begin with. Number two, if the people that are working for you are your employees, you can make it based on individual results and partially make it on the, the, the spas results on a monthly or quarterly basis. If the people that are working for you are renters, booth renters, I don't know if that happens in your world, then you got to do it on an individual type basis. But if you know that an employee is going to work X amount of hours a week or X amount of hours a month and could and should generate X amount of dollars, then you can create some type of profit plan off of what that person should be doing to book themselves up to generate revenue. So if you're on a 50-50 split or a 60-40 split or whatever it is, you have to invest a little bit out of your piece, but you need to make that profit-sharing payout based on some type of longevity, and they need to vest in it. So you just can't give them the money today so they can walk out tomorrow. You want to create an annuity where they're going to stick around with you. Lisa, does that sound like something you might be interested in trying? Yes, I can definitely do that um, to where based on time, um, volume of business that they execute, um, I'm able to give them back a little bit more. So I can start everyone off on hourly pay, and then I can add on uh, bits of commission uh, based on the profit sharing um, and and let it be results-based. And that way they are sharing in, in the revenue of the spa. And I do have enough overhead to do that. So that's definitely doable. Lisa, thank you so much for your phone call. Really appreciate it. Good luck. Hope it works out. And uh, feel free to give us a call back. We'd love to hear how, uh, how things go. At this point, Lou, I'd love to introduce you to uh, our special guest. Um, the, uh, the next person to join us is Richard Koppelman. He's CEO of Aprio, a surprisingly, and I know this sounds like an oxymoron, a surprisingly entrepreneurial accounting firm that's based in Atlanta. Welcome to Mind Your Business, Richard. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Um, so I've gotten to know Aprio a little bit through the, for the past few years. Um, tell us a little bit about what sets it apart. Um, I guess the, I would start with the fact that you went through a rebranding recently, and maybe that uh, will give our uh, listeners a, a sense of what you guys are about. W- why did you do that? Well, after being being in business for 65 years and, and watching all of the changes happening uh, within the accounting profession, and there's tremendous change happening, and the change of pace is just continuing to increase, we, uh, we looked around and decided to do what no one else has done in the top 100 CPA firms in the country, and that is to uh, abandon alphabet soup, I like to call it. Uh, <laughs> what, were you, what were you known as before? We were Habif, Arigetti, and Wynn originally uh, when we were founded in 1952, and we had evolved like many professional services firms. We had evolved to initials, and so we were HA and W. So we took the big, bold move and went to a manufactured name called Aprio about uh, two and a half years ago. And you, you didn't just do that yourselves. You, you hired some consultants to help you with that? Uh, we brought in a third party, and they went out and talked to all the stakeholders involved. They talked to our partners. They talked to our team. They talked to clients. They talked to vendors. Uh, they, uh, we talked to the AICPA that governs the CPA uh, firms across the country and, um, and came back and kept hearing two things consistently. Uh, one is that we brought our technical expertise, our heads to the table, and we actually cared about uh, our clients, you guys were just talking about caring for your people. That's, uh, uh, that's uh, equally as critical. And so, you know, building those relationships are key. And so we put uh, to a Latin root word, cap, and aria, the song of the hearts together, changed a few letters around and ended up with Aprio. <laughs> Which doesn't sound very much like an accounting firm. Was that considered a, a, a plus? Um, it... Um, it doesn't sound like an accounting firm. It causes people to ask, what does Aprio mean and where did it come from? So it engages in conversation. And I will tell you that our probably the, the most um, excited team at the office, we have about 25% of our staff is foreign-born, uh, of our team is, is foreign-born and are from over 25 different countries and speak 30 different languages. 
And so uh, they were really excited because they felt like it was a more international name. Interesting. So let me bring uh, Lou into this conversation. Uh, Lou, you and I both know uh, accountants kind of have a reputation for being overly conservative, for saying no to any and all potential expenses that they can say no to. Um, This is obviously a a different situation, uh, a firm that would take this kind of step. But let me ask you, do you think accountants, by and large, deserve the reputation they have? Wow. Um, (laughs) Don't mean to put you on the spot. How are you, Richard? It's nice to meet you, by the way. It's nice to meet you as well. (laughs) I I actually... Feel feel free. Pardon me? Feel free. Let it rest. All right. There you go. So here's what I think. Um, I think progressive accountants have gone way beyond uh, general ledgers and 13-column spreadsheets. And, you know, back in the day, as you know, Lauren, I used to be a CPA a million years ago. And I still work with 13-column spreadsheets because I like them. I just like them. <laughs> so I, I think the accounting world, I think once uh, – this is just my two cents, right? I think once uh, Arthur Anderson blew up with Enron and all that other bad stuff, I think what's left of uh, KPMG and Deloitte and – all these folks out there, they had to become a lot more progressive. And they had to think a little bit, you know, outside their norm of debits and credits and let's just do taxes. So the CPA firms that I see or or I want to see with at least our clients, I want the CPAs to be involved with the client on a more consistent basis and a more steady basis. So they have a a calming influence on a client because our clients tend to be a little emotional from time to time. So I think quality firms that get what a business owner is going through can provide tremendous value above and beyond just debits and credits. I don't know if I answered your question, but that's what I look for when I'm trying to marry. You, you didn't. Firm with them. <laughs> okay. I asked you if uh, accountants deserve their reputation for being conservative, but that's okay. Uh, but you, you talked about what it's like in this uh, in the new world, and I think mm-hmm. you know maybe that sort of answered the question. Richard, let me ask mm-hmm. you. you you obviously have done things that most accounting firms don't do. For one, the name change we just discussed, the rebranding. You also went out and made a, a big acquisition, uh, which is uh, which we'll talk about some more. Uh, is that reflective of the way your accountants work with their clients? Are you guys more entrepreneurial in your relationship with your business owner clients as well? back to our roots. So we were started, you know, as I mentioned, 1952 by two entrepreneurs who uh, were accountants. And I think that still is the lifeblood of the organization and and the history of it. Uh, Most CPA firms started because people, partners left big four or then big eight or big 10 accounting firms and started, and they came from a technical perspective. Uh, so we're just a little bit of a different breed, and uh, thankfully it's uh, continued over the, the history of the firm. Interesting. So we got two people here with a lot of experience, two uh, real pros. If you have a question about your business, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we're at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four. Nine four two seven eight six six. Let's take a call now from uh, Dan in Florida. Uh, welcome to Mind Your Business, Dan. Hey, how you doing? Doing great. What's on your mind, Dan? Well, as I was talking to the young lady who just answered, um, I have a small food manufacturing slash processing facility in Florida, and I have the opportunity to possibly acquire another business that's about half the size of what I am. And I am a fairly young business. Uh, I've been in business for a little under 10 years, but I've never acquired a new business, and I have no clue what to look for and how to do that. And I'm hoping somebody can give me a little bit of advice. I think both of these guys can give you a little bit of advice. Um, Lou, I think you've expressed in the past uh, some reservation about using acquisitions as a method of growth. And and Richard, you just (laughs) did an acquisition, so you can both talk to this. Lou, why don't you go first? What what should Dan be careful about? Well, to me, I think acquisitions are fine if they make sense strategically and they make sense financially. So I, I have no problem with doing that. I always worry about someone over-leveraging themselves. So, so uh, Dan, what did you say your business was? It's food manufacturing. Okay. And you said 
uh, you're you're looking to make an acquisition or someone came to you to be bought out? Uh, I was approached uh, by a company that's about the half the size that I am now, and I was approached kind of in the incubation stage. We haven't talked numbers or anything like that, so they, it was an idea, and it's something that I might have the opportunity to do. Okay. So here's, here's my advice to you. Um, whoever your CPA is, and if you don't have one, there's one on the phone, Richard. Whoever your CPA is, have someone sit down with you, go through their financials, their results. Make sure you do some really solid due diligence. Whatever the price is, what's going to be the impact on your liquidity for the next year or two years? Because these mergers and acquisitions don't always blend so seamlessly. And if it works and you can control it and you have the funding to do it, you know, you're a young guy, it sounds like, take a shot. If it doesn't work, listen to what your professionals tell you and back up. That's my thought, Lauren. Richard, I'm sure you've counseled lots of clients on these kinds of issues, but you've also been through it yourself. Uh, what, what would you say to Dan? Yeah, can I ask a couple more questions? Absolutely. Okay, great. So, Dan, pleasure to meet you. I actually, uh, before becoming CEO of our firm six years ago, spent uh, 18 years in the manufacturing, working with manufacturing clients of our firm. So, very familiar with what you're doing. And I not only did some acquisitions last year, but we currently have five letters of intent we're, we're negotiating right now um, for our own firm. Um, Geography-wise, is this business close to yours? Well, that was another one of my fears. Logistically, it's, it's about 100 miles from where I am. So that was one of my fears of how do I manage it. Okay. And, and do you manufacture the, the same opportunity? Thing? My oper- what I thought about, I'm sorry, but what I thought about is it gives me the opportunity to expand and grow into new markets with new customers. That was the excitement of it. And do you manufacture the same food items? Yes. Same products. And, and what's the size, if, if we can ask that question, the size of your business? Of them? Uh, Either one. I'm right around seven million. I'm right around seven million dollars in revenue, and they're just they're a little over three million, I believe. Culturally, is but their similarities. Yeah. And customer base. In terms, we have totally different customer base. Totally different customers. Okay. Are they in a rural market? And are you in a, are you in rural or urban markets? Um, I think we're in open markets right now, both of us. Okay, okay, good. Um, so I think Lou gave you some great advice. Um, there's a there's a term out there called quality of earnings um, that a lot of people will use to evaluate the financial health of the business and its ability to consistently deliver financial results post merger. Uh, post-acquisition. Um, this, at the size that you're talking about, I've, a lot of people will refer to it as just a business person's review, but I definitely would get your professionals engaged. Um, I spend my early time with the business uh, focusing on the culture and can the synergies, and you're talking about synergies from a customer perspective, can those actually be achieved? And um, I don't know what the receptiveness will be in terms of you getting in front of their customers or even getting their customer list. And I know sometimes people are pretty protective of that. And maybe there's a way to get customer data without getting the names of the customers. I would spend my early time uh, before I spent money and engaged professionals and got distracted, because this will be a major distraction to you, uh, is to get really get a good understanding of the culture and the customer base and also dig into your customer base to identify whether or not they would accept this um, this acquisition's products. Okay, thank you. Dan, that. is it right. is it your expectation that the people who are running that business now would continue to run it? No, they're 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 aging out. I see. And and Richard, does how big a difference does that make? Is that make it more attractive or less attractive? So in a, in a people business, that would make it very attractive, especially in a new market. In a manufacturing business, that makes it very attractive um, if, you can tr- if you don't have to replace those costs. Now, what you end up with a battle, you'll end up with a little bit of, the, little bit of a battle with the seller because sellers often like to see if they can get the synergy values in their purchase price. Um, 
and uh, buyers never want to do that. So it just depends on what they're what they're thinking. And if they're aging out, the question is: Have they been just running this as a lifestyle business versus a growth business? Which should mean that there's a lot of upside opportunity in the deal long term. That's good. Is this helpful, Dan? Yeah, that's that's great. I appreciate that. Thank you for your call. We appreciate your calling you. in and uh, sharing your uh, uh, your situation with us. Best of luck with it. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Lou, I think this, this raises kind of an interesting question, which is sort of what what's the right way to manage and make use of uh, the accountant that a business owner works with? Um, is an accountant an advisor? Do you turn to your accountant to ask questions like, should I expand? Should I acquire a business? What? How do you look at that relationship? Uh, you know, the way I see it is, is accountants fall into buckets to some degree, just like most professionals do. So you have some accountants slash CPAs that basically, you know, just provide year-end financials and tax services. And, you know, would I count on those type of professionals to help you beyond that? Mm, I'm not really sure. Um, I really, I really want all of my clients to have an ongoing working understanding relationship with their professionals and you know sort of in the context of how you and i talked in the past about having this board of advisors and i think the cpa should you know may not be part, shouldn't be part of the actual decision making process for the business but should be available to give really good independent counsel on a business and i think those i think any cpa that falls into that bucket is worth his weight in gold richard does that make sense to you yeah, I'm after them in two buckets, the compliance CPA and the business advisor CPA. And and how do you how do you view your relationship with most of your clients? How do, how do you like to think about it from your side? Well, we have 30 fundamentals of behavior that define Aprio, and one of them for example is make a difference. Um and uh, and the other one is be the expert advisor. So you want to be at the table. I'm sorry. So you want to be at the table. You'd like to be part of the decision. Um, you know, helping. Cl- I th- I think that CPAs, any outside advisor, is never going to know unless they've worked in that industry. Is never really going to know the business or the industry as well as the client. I think it's helping them find and figure out the answer by asking the the hard questions. And keep digging and digging and digging and peeling the onion back until you really get to the core and get to the decision. Um, help the owner get to the decision or the management team get to, to the right decision. They're the right decision Lauren, for them. So, Lauren, just think about a minute ago, you know, uh, what Richard suggested to, to I forgot, Dan, Dan was culturally, how's this going to fit? And that's the kind of stuff you bring to the table when you've got that type of experience. So, you know, when someone's looking to make an acquisition or a potential seller approaches you that they want to be bought out, there's a lot more involved than just do the numbers work. And, you know, if a good advisor can put some thoughts on the table to make you and as, as an owner think, that, that's, that's where the value comes from. Richard, I'd like to pick up with uh, with your uh, the acquisition that I was referring to. You, you went out and bought an accounting firm, but it wasn't just you know, a, a larger accounting firm buying a smaller accounting firm, which happens all the time, and I'm sure you've probably done that too. You went out and bought a cloud accounting firm, one that operates in a very different uh, manner. Tell us, uh, tell us about that. Yeah, we uh, we've been looking at the changes going on in the accounting space and and really paying attention to what's possible in terms of accounting. And there's a lot of automation happening in the in the accounting space. There's a lot of money pouring into it. Uh, a lot of new software companies and services companies, and uh, and somewhat somewhat accounting firms are going back to what we used to do 20, 15, 30, 50 years ago, um, which was take care of doing the accounting for our clients. Except now it's in an automated. It's done in an automated world. How, how do you mean you're going back to the way it used to be? In what sense? Well, we used to, when I first started at our firm, we did, I don't know, even, I don't even know what the number was, but hundreds, if not a thousand different companies relied on us to do their accounting for them. But it was done in the old days where they'd send us their check stubs and you'd key it into a dumb terminal and produce financial statements. Um, and now more and more companies 
are either completely outsourcing or co-sourcing a function or a part of their accounting department. And uh, we have we have so we have so through Aprio Cloud we have about 350 clients that in some form or fashion are relying uh, relying on us to be part of their accounting department, and we've curated the right technologies to create automation and drive um, drive the accounting function in a way that provides companies and business owners real time data and real-time insights into what's happening on a daily basis uh, with their with their companies and with their financial performance. Instead of spending our time key punching what I call peckers, having people in the background pecking keyboards, um, we're, you know, we've automated most of those processes and are spending our time delivering information to the clients. So uh, when you're talking to your clients uh, uh, about the offerings of the firm, how do you steer them in the right direction? Who should go cloud? Who should go more traditional? You know, that gets back to knowing who your client is, being curious, and asking really good questions. And it, it you know, it depends. It's a, I think everything's a custom fit for where are they going, what's their growth strategy, um, how do they want to run their business, what are they comfortable with. You know, we need to meet clients. Part of it is just meeting a client where they are. So you're not going to serve a seasoned entrepreneur that's maybe been in business for 35 or 40 years the same way you're going to serve a startup technology company that, you know, the, the, the youngsters are still in school at Georgia Tech, and they're starting at the incubator there. They want to be, those companies want to be served very different ways. Lou, are you going cloud? Um, uh, actually, I'm not sure what that question is. <laughs> yeah, I think you just answered it. <laughs> Let's take a phone call. Uh, Alex in Maryland, welcome to Mind Your Business. Um, hey, so we have it's in the rowing, uh, sport of rowing, and we started a repair facility seven years ago, and we've recently acquired a distribution um and so we, we actually bring in boats from overseas to or from Australia, and we build them now in Rhode Island. So we formed a holding company. And my question is we have about 45 employees total. My question is do we do all the accounting, so payroll, um, insurance, everything under one roof, or do we keep it separate in three different companies? Richard, do you want to take a crack at that? Um, sure. So you said you have a holding company, and then the holding company owns three other companies, or it owns two companies? It owns, it owns three total companies now, yeah, three, and, and they're all in different parts of the country. One's in Rhode Island, uh, and then well, actually two are based in Baltimore, Maryland. So two in Baltimore, Maryland, Annapolis, and then one in Rhode Island. And is the holding company an LLC? It is an LLC, yep. Okay, is it taxed as a partnership? It is yeah. There's four members of the LLC. Okay, but do you know? Is it? It could be an S corp. It could be a partnership for tax purposes. Oh, it's a, it's. I think it's a. Well, I just know that it's an LLC, and I, I guess potentially would be a partnership. Um, I just know that it's an LLC, and there's four members of the LLC. Okay. Cool. Um, will you eventually? If you were to sell it, would you sell it as one combined business, or would you sell them separately? As a combined, as a combination. I think the goal really is to hold on to this for the next 15, 20 years. I don't, I don't see us selling any parts of this business anytime soon. And any assets inside the uh, holding company? Well, I, maybe you can answer it. Um, each, each company has its own assets, so um, equipment, boats, uh, baking ovens, paint booths, probably a total combined assets of about $1.5 million. Uh, beyond that, uh, nothing else. And the holding company is just a holding company then. It doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't have any assets or liabilities. No assets, liabilities, correct. It's just a holding company. Okay. So majority, you, could do, probably, you could do one, one of two things. Can I be prescriptive now? Is that okay? Yep. Okay. Um, so the whole, you can either do one of two things, either the holding company or create a new management company, uh, but you should centralize all of the payroll and benefits and everything. It would make it would probably be more cost-effective if you have it separated across all three today. Um, and you can do it under 
IRS has regulations uh, that fall under the term uh, common paymaster. So you can put everybody in one bucket and and then just allocate the cost. Um, you would want to make sure if you made that change that unemployment tax rates at a state level, if you've been able to get yours down below the maximum levels after you, since you've been in business for a while, you want to make sure those transfer over. And sometimes that gets missed and could increase your um, your state unemployment tax rates. So you want to make sure that that gets taken care of. Um, the other thing you ought to be looking at if you're not, and I know this is totally off subject, but I can't help myself, uh, if you are creating new things in your business as a manufacturer, as a boat builder, uh, you might have the opportunity to obtain some tax credits, both at a federal and state level, depending on um, what the state rules are in, in your locations. Those would be tax credits so, for, for what exactly, Richard? Uh, could be research and development, could be training of employees on new business processes. Got it. Lou, let me ask you, uh, Richard's kind of addressing the, the mechanics. Would you have any questions for Alex about the strategy of the way that they're going about building the company? Um, I don't know enough to really have any questions other than I would suggest this. Um, I think any step you can take to make your life simpler, like centralizing payroll, you should do. I think you should be focusing on growing the business and growing the business profitably and, and try to make the administrative tasks as simple as possible. And I think that the advice that Richard gave is spot on, especially when it comes to individual state tax rates and unemployment rates and workman comp rates. I think you ought to be careful about that, but that's what you put good professionals around you for to handle that. Alex, is this helpful? Any further questions? Uh, I guess I just want to make sure that I heard right. It's better to centralize payroll, so we should bring everything under one under one business, correct? Correct. You, and and you may or may not want to use the holding company to do that. You may want to create a separate management company or use one of the three companies you already have in place. That is one, this is wonderful. This is everything that I needed. Thank you so much. Thanks for your call. Yeah. Appreciate it, Alex. If, you, right. if you've got a question about your business, please give us a call. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We've got two guys who've been there uh, here ready to answer your question and offer any help they can. Um, let's uh, – let, Lou, I want to ask you this. Um, you and I have talked in the past uh, a little bit about how you make a decision about uh, when is a good time for a business owner to take money off the table versus investing money in the business. I think you tend to believe that it's you know the best investment you can t make is in yourself and you should put the money in the business. But there got to be some times when you want to take something off the table just to diversify. How, how do you approach that decision? What do you mean take it off the table? I'm not sure what that T means. Take it out of the business and maybe put it in a, uh, you know, a money market fund or, or something safe just so that you don't have all your eggs in one basket. I, I'm just, listen, I'm a, uh, I just believe that if you have solid control over your business, you know, stuff can go wrong. I get it. There's outside influences. I get it. But, you know, you can't control what goes on in the stock market. And not to be in the stock market is probably – foolish also i just am a believer that if you know what kind of return if you have a business where you can generate a four five six seven eight percent net profit that return is something that you can have a better control over than sticking a hundred grand in a in a in a, uh, in a merrill lynch account somewhere and hope that that you get good returns so i'm always a believer to the extent that you possibly can to invest in your business but i'm a i'm actually you know while i while I push it, Lauren, and I tease about it, I'm okay with people investing in their 401ks and investing in the stock market. I just believe the one investment you have a better grasp over that you can control and you have no one else to point at is yourself and your business. Richard, is this the kind of question that you guys offer advice on, and, and what would your approach be? Yeah, you know, we deal with this question all the time, and, uh, you know, I don't have – I never have the same answer twice as it relates to... Um, Everybody's when, situation is different. When and how to take money off the table. Um, 
you know, it's, for each person is different. I mean, I've, I've watched business owners roll the dice, you know, 20 times and they, you know, keep, uh, they, you know, they, they, they keep striking a seven every time and, and they're winning. Um, and others have, you know, I've seen, I've seen people crap out. Um, it, it really, you know, so there's no, I don't, I don't know if there's a right or wrong. Um, I do think that there's, you know, inflection points in every business, and you got to decide at that inflection point what is the right way to take some money off the table without giving up control if you're not prepared to do that. And I always tell people when they do do it, make sure you get enough cash. If you do give up control, make sure you got enough cash to make it worth it, because a lot of times the equity component, you know, might not. You know, sometimes it doesn't. It ends up not being worth anything. The equity piece, and then you're relying on somebody else. That makes sense. Um, and, and I, I want to echo Lou's comment. I think you know the the most productive asset our clients own in terms of rate of return is their business. Fair enough. Lou, can I put you on the spot one more time? Are we still friends? It depends what you ask. <laughs> <laughs> How should a business owner think about paying an accountant? Can you give us any guidelines, thoughts on what makes sense? Okay, so again, back in the day, I used to always believe that, uh, you know, and I, I work for some big eight accounting firms a thousand years ago, and I don't even know what we're down to now. Big two, big four, none of the above. I don't know. But I, I used to believe that your the accountant's fees for a regular audit or review or compilation or tax preparation should be a percentage of overall revenue. What I look at now, Lauren, is when we're working with clients around the country, I don't look at what the fee is as a percentage of revenue anymore. I look at the fee as to what advice is my client getting. So if I have a $6 million contract or an $8 million machine shop and they're paying thirty-five grand a year in fees, you know, that might be a bargain based on what they're getting in terms of advice, information, input, dialogue, uh, a clear, clearly someone to go to that they can trust. On the flip side, you know, if you're paying ten or twelve grand a year and you're getting nothing but a tax return at the end of the year, I think that might be too expensive. So I, it really there's not a there's not a rule that I would go by. Richard, do you have an answer to that question? You know, for for us and how we approach our clients is about creating value, and the market, just like the public markets, the market I think is very efficient. There's not a large variation between quality CPA firms or CPA-led advisory firms that, um, you know, if the quality is the same or similar in terms of the compliance work, the fees are going to be roughly the same. It gets down to the intangibles. And I always uh, believe that uh, just like we do with the professionals that we use, you know, our law firms and, and other third parties, is – you know, let's lay the fees out so there's no surprises. And then what value is being brought to the table and can I quantify that value? So it's not uncommon for us to sit down with a company, and I'll use manufacturing as an example, where we can sit down and say, hey, you know what, you've been paying this. We're going to be why, but we're going to bring these particular val- this particular value to the table, and let's just say it's tax credits and incentives which we see 82% of companies not take. And at the end of the day, we're actually a um, generator of cash to the business versus a cost. Interesting. So, so Lauren, can, how can, Lauren, can, how I can you find a relationship where that happens? I think that's the, that's the challenge I would give to, to companies. Go for it, Lou. All right. So, you know, it, it, you and I have known each other for a while now, and certainly my company is, is certainly not the cheapest consulting firm you can, you can hire. And, in fact, I'm proud of that because we sort of go by three things if we can. We want to be transparent as, as much as reasonably possible. We want to be transparent with everyone we deal with. Number two, if we don't provide value, we don't belong there, so it doesn't matter what our rates are. And number three, we want to be part of setting whatever direction the client needs us to help them set. So I think that to say what is something valued at, it depends how much value you can bring. So I, I, I think that anyone that puts good value on the table is direct, open, and honest, and, and they're helping their client 
gain more or win more? How do you put a price on that? Good question. <laughs> How do you? Because ultimately you have to. Yeah, well, we set, we set our rates based on what we think is fair for what we bring to the table. And we never waver on that. And, you know, clients have the opportunity to say yes or no. But we try to make sure they can make their own choice and what we're going to provide. I, what I'm hearing, you know, when I listen to Richard talk about making a difference and being an expert advisor, you know, it, it's everybody says they want to be an advisor or a trusted advisor. Doing it's another story. And if you do it and you build pedigree, Values, value is, is always there. Richard, we're, we're very short in time, but I want to, did, you, did it make it more di- complicated for you when you added the, uh, the cloud uh, uh, side to your business? Um, you've got different, very different offerings now. So I wouldn't say more difficult. It just is different. And I think Lots of businesses are different today than they were five years ago, and they're going to be even more different in five more years as the speed of technology continues to advance. So we, um, we acquired the business in October of last year, and on the date of the acquisition, I was standing in front of a computer with the president, um, now partner and, and, and managing director of Aprio Cloud, and Bruce Phillips, and the two of us are standing in front of a computer in our training facility here in Atlanta, and we had 55 people on a Zoom call, and we did the onboarding and welcoming them to Aprio. Interesting. Um, normally, you know, I was used to doing that in person, but you're not going to fly 55 people in and <laughs> work for two days. So um, it's just different, and we were until the beginning of 2017, we were, outside of New York, the largest single office CPA firm in the country. Richard, I'm going to have to stop you there. I'm sorry to say we're going to have to have you both back. This has been great. Richard Kopelman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Richard, go to Aprio.com, or you can find him on Twitter, at Aprio Advisors. Lou Mosca, thank you, too, as always. We'll have you back again soon. If you want to keep up with Lou, go to amserve.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Mosca Small Biz. You've been listening to Mind Your Business on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM 132. Thanks for listening, everybody. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 